Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week another installment in Fascism in Fiction. Except that this is the beginning of a mini-mini-series in that covering movies and other pieces of media that fascists and other people on the right wing generally like. This week I'm talking about American Psycho, a 2000 horror comedy movie? It's definitely a horror movie. It's depending on who you ask if it's a comedy or not. It's directed by Mary Heron, and it's based on a famously considered to be unfilmable novel of the same name from 1991 by Brett Easton Ellis. The movie and the book concern their main character, Patrick Bateman, who is played by Christian Bale in the movie, as he deals with a spiraling mental health crisis that eventually involves extreme violence combined with rote, inane, boring, late 80s consumerism. Like I said, it's set in the late 80s in the world of Manhattan high finance. So we're talking like taxis and high rises and fancy apartments and, you know, fancy boardrooms and nice restaurants and stuff like that. The movie, which is extremely violent to the point of being campy and comedy, has a very different tone from the book, which is much bleaker, more terrifying and more ambiguous, which is just part of the nature of the comparison between written literature and film. The book, American Psycho, frankly has the most disturbing imagery and events of any book that I have ever read that is not about actual crimes that real human beings committed, like during the Holocaust or during the dirty wars in Argentina. I mean, I'm talking like there are scenes in this book that haunt me to this day. I, I read it in college in a class that was about finance in, in United States and literature. This book is so disturbing that the professor who is teaching that class said that her colleagues saw that she put it on the syllabus and were like, are, are, are you sure? Like, are you really going to make him read that? Like I said, the movie takes this in a somewhat campier direction. But if violence is something that you cannot stand seeing on screen, then this movie is absolutely not for you. I'm going to be talking more about the movie as that is the more famous of the two properties. The plot is this. Patrick Bateman is ostensibly a high-functioning and high-powerful business executive in Manhattan. But his job appears to only consist of schmoozing with colleagues and figuring out which of a set of popular restaurants he's supposed to be going to and which ones are out of style already. This world is one of petty one-upsmanship, like with fashion or caring extremely deeply about the quality and like heft of particular types of business cards. This is the central theme of the movie. It concerns Patrick Bateman's inability to find an identity in this world, one of vapid, empty consumerism, right? The movie plays this very well, like as, about as well as a movie could. The book does this, I would say, a little bit more effectively with chapters alternating between actual depictions of Bateman's life, you know, as he understands it, and like just magazine articles that Bateman is reading or apparently reading that are about, you know, the right kind of music to be listening to or the right kind of shoes to be buying or which glasses are in style right now. The book really embeds you in this world in the way that, you know, a movie with a runtime of a couple hours as opposed to a book which, you know, might take you several days or weeks to get through really can't. You know, the movie really can't put you in that place in the way that the book can. The plot of the movie continues as an alternation between these mundane scenes in which Bateman interacts with his colleagues 
or with his fiancée in a series of boring restaurants and hotels and apartment building parties and taxi rides, and it alternates this with Bateman's extreme violence. Early on, we get our first scene of extreme violence as Bateman gets upset that one of his colleagues has much better business cards than he does, so he kills a homeless man. Then Bateman gets upset that a colleague is mistaking him for another person. Like, this is, again, the theme of the movie, Bateman not being able to know what his identity is, you know, who he is. He uses this to his advantage, however, and he gets that colleague drunk, takes him back to his apartment, and then murders him with an axe while the new wave band Huey Lewis and the News is playing in the background. This is a very famous scene. If you've seen one scene from this movie, it's probably this Christian Bale dancing around in a clear poncho hacking a man to death with an axe. He then ends up using this deceased colleague's apartment as a base for killing and torturing more people and covers it up by telling people that his dead colleague has gone to London. The movie then continues with, a again, a series of vignettes where we get Bateman killing people and torturing people and then going to a holiday party and then killing and torturing people and then going to a board meeting and then killing and torturing people and then going to a little party at a hotel room or something. The movie mixes this descent into violence with sex as the people that Bateman tortures and kills are primarily women. Primarily, they are either sex workers that he hires from the street or women who report to him at work. Notably, none of this concerns his fiancée herself, whom he mainly seems to only encounter at dinner or in taxis on the way to parties where they are schmoozing with other people or maybe like having affairs of their own, but that's what they're supposed to be doing. You know, they're, they're members of high society in New York. That's the whole point here. Some subplots includes a closeted co-worker of Bateman's, who thinks that Bateman is also in the closet and actually comes onto him in a male restroom. Remember, this is the late 80s, and so male homosexuality was in many senses still criminal and very highly frowned upon in society. The movie also makes sure to raise the, uh, the AIDS epidemic as a reason that Bateman would be afraid of this homosexual colleague. But of course, he's also afraid of this homosexual colleague because this colleague has correctly identified that Bateman is hiding a part of himself from the rest of the world, right? That Bateman is only pretending to be the person that he claims to be in most situations. Bateman doesn't kill this colleague. Instead, he runs away scared, apparently having been seen, at least in some way. Another subplot include Willem Dafoe, who plays a detective who is investigating the colleague that Bateman killed, you know, the colleague whose apartment he's using. Willem Dafoe's character adeptly understands that Bateman is hiding something, and he's trying to figure out if Bateman has an alibi, but, you know, for the time of his colleague's death. But this is complicated by the fact that the dead colleague, who, you know, Bateman claims went to London, the dead colleague didn't know that he was going to dinner with Patrick Bateman because he didn't know who Patrick Bateman was, right? That's, again, the central theme of the film. As the movie gets farther and farther into its narrative, the violence gets crazier and crazier, as does Patrick Bateman himself. This is a more drawn-out process in the book. In the movie, it happens pretty abruptly. Uh, there's a massive over-the-top sequence in which Patrick Bateman kills a cat by feeding it to an ATM, like putting it in the slot, and the ATM asked him to do this. After this, there's a police chase after Bateman kills a woman at Point Blank Range, and then Patrick Bateman blows up a cop car with a handgun. And that is where the movie gets really, really interesting. 
Because at that moment, when Bateman shoots this cop car and it blows up like it explodes in a theatrical movie type way, he looks at the gun confused because he knows that a handgun can't do that. Terrified, he runs up into his office and he calls his therapist and confesses to killing the several dozen people that the movie has shown him killed. He, he also says that he ate some of these people, which is something that the movie spares us, but which the book, again, as a warning, does not. Then, however, we get the final couple scenes of the movie. It's the next morning. Patrick Bateman goes back to his dead colleague's apartment to try to clean it up, you know, to try to get rid of all the evidence of people that he's murdered, dead bodies and things. But he finds it clean, empty, and being sold. The real estate agent says that it never even belonged to the person that he thought it belonged to anyway. He runs into his psychiatrist at lunch, the person that he confessed all of these murders to. The psychiatrist doesn't recognize him and thinks that he's pulling a joke, again, because the psychiatrist doesn't believe that Patrick Bateman, what a loser, could have even pulled off such a joke like that. Or even, obviously, that he couldn't have been so crazy as to do all of those murders and commit all of those crimes. What's worse, even, is that people now say that the murder investigation is called off because the colleague that Bateman killed has actually been seen in London. And so the movie ends with Bateman in a conversation with his colleagues, and they're just shooting the shit, talking with each other, and we're left not knowing if any of these crimes happened, or if any of them did, which ones, with Bateman realizing that nobody knows who he is, none of his crimes mattered, he wasn't able to separate himself out from the world, he wasn't able to create a transgressive identity, he is actually trapped in this identityless, consumerist purgatory, along with all of the other men with him. It's just that his torture is that he knows that he's trapped in this way. He's unsatisfied with it, but he can't get out. The movie was a critical success, although it was polarizing, much like the book it was based on, and it's eventually had a later life of its own on social media. It's part of a list of movies and properties that feature characters who are parodies or critiques of masculinity and the right wing that many people on the, you know, sort of masculinist influencer universe and other right wing people have come to earnestly agree with or relate to because of their total misunderstanding of the character, right? Chris Christian Bale's Patrick Bateman is not a hero. He is supposed to be a sad, terrified man who is either a mass murderer or who whose only way of thinking about himself as being powerful is to fantasize about murder in an, in an infantile, stupid, childish cartoonish way that, that revolves around violence against women and people who have sexualities that he finds threatening, right? This is supposed to be a feminist critique of that kind of perspective. But a lot of people who are not interested in those kinds of nuances do not experience the movie that way, right? Instead, they see Patrick Bateman as a, as a sympathetic figure, as somebody who they identify with and say, you know, that, that they're experiencing similar problems. This is specifically the realm of a particular internet subculture concept called the Sigma male. Now, you might have heard about this before. The Sigma male concept comes from the same nonsense, bad ecological study that gave us the alpha male and the beta male, which is based on a study of wolf families, which the original authors of the ecological study have themselves discredited, even as it pertains to wolves, 
they also note that this was never supposed to be about human beings in general, but that hasn't stopped, you know, the manosphere from taking this, running with it. And it's just entered the popular lexicon, right? An alpha male, a beta male. Well, the sigma male, the idea is that there are alphas who lead people, betas who are led, you know, who follow, and sigmas who operate outside of society and don't play by its rules. Characters that are typically identified as sigma males include the Joker, Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver, all of which I'll probably cover in this little miniseries, and are often identified to include Patrick Bateman himself. Now, the concept of the sigma male has emerged as one of those jokes, but also kind of serious internet identities in the late 2010s, in which a lot of people seem to be engaging with it in a semi-ironic way, but a lot of people also seem to be engaging with it in a relatively serious way, you know, identifying with Bateman's inability to find a home and his inability to experience belonging in society and his desires for extreme violence as a way to show his belonging and as a way to carve out a world for himself. This has also led to people identifying real-world figures, real-world transgressive violent men as sigmas. You know, we're talking about Elon, Elon Musk, Andrew Tate, Donald Trump. The sigma male as a meme has also become an internet phenomenon, with memes featuring Bale as Patrick Bateman emoting but looking dead inside, which is uh, Christian Bale's key wonderful note for the character, right? That he had to be friendly but have nothing behind his eyes. Ironically, of course, the advice given to sigma males is to work extremely hard at extremely long jobs and therefore, you know, like play by the rules, like follow other people's rules, like get a job and do hard work, I guess, is the, the idea, as opposed to like actually living outside of society, you know, not actually bucking the system or like going off and living alone as like a hermit or something, which is presumably what the whole concept is about. Instead, it is a semi-ironic way, you know, a way to identify with something while holding it at enough of arm's length such that if you get criticized, you can be like, oh, no, but it was a joke, right? So it's a semi-ironic way, a too close to serious internet way of justifying being transgressive, violent, and cruel. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out on all one word. The Patreon is the way that you can help me keep the lights on here. That's also where you can reach me at Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you Thursday. Thursday.